It's everyone's favorite show about all things Utah. A show where four hosts, and sometimes a guest, discuss whatever they want regarding Utah, and mostly stay on topic. It's the new Utah Podcast, with your hosts, Bree, Chris, Jeremy, and Jessica. It's episode 244 of the new Utah Podcast, and we are uh, one week into a new presidency. Woohoo! How does everyone feel? It was such an awesome day I, last Wednesday. Like, it felt so good. Yeah, I don't know about any of that. I had a shitty day. So <laughs> it was, well, I didn't, not work-wise or anything, but just Yeah, that's, that. that's what consumed my day. I didn't get to pay attention to any of the inauguration. Did Brie, you DVR it? No. Brie, cause Watch you, it on YouTube, on Vox. You could just go to any of the news stations. They all have um, it. PBS had a really good, like, compilation of all of, like, different clips. So you could see, like... Each one of them take their oath. You could see each one of the performances. You could see the poet laureate. You could see when they signed the pledge, all of that kind of stuff. And they just had like little snippets of video. So if you just had a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there, you could watch some of the little pieces because since they did it early, I had been kind of watching it in the background and I had a call at 10 and I was so excited when they started to do it early because I, oh my God, I get to watch this. So I, I was able to watch it, but then I didn't get to finish hearing his speech and stuff. And so after I was done with my call, then I went back and found that. So I, and I'm pretty sure that it was PBS that I found all of those on. I was busy, so I didn't get to see much of it, but I saw a few clips here and there. I'm excited. His speech was really good. I think it was pretty inspiring and he he condemned the old administration without like, being an asshole about it. Spending the next four years blaming Trump for everything like Trump did for Obama. To be fair, it was also the uh, Republicans in Congress that were a big part of that problem. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, well, happy new administration. Hopefully he doesn't fuck it up even more. Um, I don't think he will. I'm hopeful. I don't know if that's possible. I, I did ask. I did ask. Bree, so Bree was like giving me play by play. Uh, she was giving it to both of us play by play on Google. She's like, oh, the you guys VP said was, you couldn't watch. The VP was just sworn <laughs> in. And I'm like, what? And my immediate thought was, and I, I asked this, what happens if uh, Biden doesn't actually swear in? Does she become president? Then it freaked me out until they got they brought him up because then there was a pause. and Like a wedding when the groom uh, doesn't show up. Uh-huh. Don't say that. We're getting married soon. Don't say that. You keep talking about signing us up for a, a divorce, so. No, I talk about signing us up to get a prenuptial or, yeah, re, pre, 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 pre-filling pre, the our pre-filling divorce. Pre-filling for ourdivorce.com. Our so. That's all right. I, I think it's along the same vein. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's a good service that they offer. It allows me to, uh, get the divorce all lined up, get you to be completely copacetic and agreeable, and we can just sit on it. For as long as we want, and then when we're ready, we can maybe go make adjustments to it if we have to, and pay two ninety nine when we're ready for the divorce. They need us. They need a little jingle. Two ninety nine. Are you out of your mind? Something like that. There you go, Jeremy. I should just record that. And <laughs> with, what am I? It is recorded. I should cut it and send it to him. Send it to him. Let him play. Maybe you should make a TikTok. Your first TikTok. Two ninety nine. Are you out of your mind? It's the TurboTax of divorce. Ourdivorce.com. and that cannot be their slogan because they'll probably get sued by TurboTax. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's what it is. You um, could call it like they do for the the Super Bowl, like the big game. You could call it like the big divorce. The big no, D. our divorce, but D. no TurboTax. No, no you'd D. have to come up with another name for TurboTax. <laughs> I don't think the big. 
D is appropriate. That's, that might not, be like that could be taken the wrong way. Well, perhaps. I mean, the big D might be why they're getting a divorce, <laughs> or the little D. I'm not sure, <laughs> but the D could be the reason. We don't know. We don't know. There's usually a D somewhere. Maybe in the they divorce. both figure out that not they usually. Maybe huh. both of them figure out they like the D, and uh, oh yeah, the well, divorce yeah. is mutual or at that point. Don't. Yeah, or yeah, both ways. Which there. is when the D is not involved. But, so. but when both of them determine that they don't like the D, it might not be as mutual. But when both say, like, if it's a man and a woman, they're both like, yeah, we like the D. That's going to be a pretty mutual separation because the woman wants the D and the man's not giving her the D. So because he wants D from another D. So see, it's the big D. Yeah. OurDivorce.com. The big D. Get your divorce. Brought to you by the big D. <laughs> <laughs> this week's episode brought to you by, by the, the big, big D. D. Fuck, that might actually end up being a show title now. Uh, nice. Which is not, I mean, considering our guest, considering it's uh, the last month of the show, last month, the last show of the month, um, uh, we have some different things planned uh, this week that we um, haven't done yet. Um, so New year. New year. No more famous Utah. We ran out of those. Infamous uh, Utahns ran out of those. Only a dozen famous ones and a dozen infamous <laughs> That's ones. That's it. There are no more. That's it. That's it. Well, a little more than a dozen because we did a couple a couple oh, yeah. different times. Um so that's it. No one else famous from Utah. It's maybe 16-ish. Uh, we're really hoping this year we've picked correctly, and we're going to be doing places of historical significance. You need the old guy from uh, Indiana Jones. You have chosen poorly. poorly. <laughs> well, I mean, really, there's a lot of stuff that could be tagged as historically significant, so... Um, we'd be hard-pressed not to find 12 of those. I'm excited. This is Jess's like. idea. We're going to run with it. Yep. And if we trip... I'm not running anywhere today. I'm really tired. Yeah. Just don't have scissors. What? When you run. Don't run with scissors. Safety scissors are fine. No, you shouldn't run with scissors. Those kids' scissors that you can't What about you knives? With anything with no, not knives or pencils or pens or anything like I that. I told you about that old lady who killed herself with the metal straw, who was in a car driving and she had those metal straws and she hit the brakes and... Right in her eye, and it killed her. Hey, you know what happened, though? No turtles died because of that straw. <laughs> <laughs> Was it worth it, turtles? Was uh, it yeah. worth it? Fuck yeah. You know how many turtles we kill as humans? I think they get one knocked up to them. It's great. They're still celebrating that, actually, out in the ocean. <laughs> it's on the turtle news. The tur- Remember that old lady that died with a straw in her eye? TNN, <laughs> the Turtle News Network. The TNN. <laughs> Their weathermen are octopus. octopi. And the weather's always the same. <laughs> Today will be wet. <laughs> <laughs> the ocean turns at 6 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is just going to be... We should just rename this the two dads talking about stupid shit. <laughs> I don't have the camera going because you should see these two. They're just like, whatever. They're, they're both like, ah, we're out. That's it. <laughs> Show's over, folks. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I don't know what else, uh, I don't know what else new to talk about, really. Um, anything exciting since the carpet laying? Nope. Still looking for furniture. I'm still putting the house back together. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. it takes a while. Well, because we, Especially with the kids, like I said last week, we don't want to just take everything and dump it back in there. So we've been making them go through stuff. And So the end of this week, our house is going to start its transformation into butamus at the end. Uh, they're going to rip off all our siding, which is, you know, 
We'll see. Um, it's going to look really shitty for a few days. They're going to put in... Probably like a week, because they're going to... They put in all new windows. They're tearing off the siding on Thursday and Friday, and then it'll sit over the weekend, and then Monday they're putting in the windows with a possibility of Tuesday if they need it, and then they'll come back and start doing that. But like So week. like a week. It's going to look like shit. Yeah. My neighbor got new windows. I sat in the office today watching... They did the whole house in like I don't know three hours. Yeah, I, I don't think it'll take two days. The, the bay, window I don't part think so doesn't. The take bay long. windows are big, so. But it's like they're like six separate windows, so it's but like having eight windows. Done. I I will say with no siding in play, their times like cut in half because half of the time it takes to install the fucking windows is yeah, dealing with the trying outside to be careful and, and not mess up. The, and they get it putting back the siding on back on and making sure it looks good and all of that. So. Yeah, now it's gonna look good. Your inside of the house is looking good. The outside of the house will be looking good. You won't know it. I'll get into the neighborhood. Great. Think I'm in the wrong cul-de-sac. One of my friends yeah. was like, "You have to, um, you have to put a bigger sign or better sign so you don't drive past it." But she doesn't know that I live at the bottom. If of the I drive circle. past it, I'm going to run into my neighbor's house. Like, <laughs> well, and you can't miss the 27 cars parked at the end. Well, of the Well, I know. Like, you would basically park and be in my driveway anyway. Which half of them are anyway. I am getting new house numbers, though, because the house numbers that are there, I mean, there's nothing special about they're them. They're fine, so but they're above yeah. the garage you're door. Pick, you're going to pick the numbers you want, like 666? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm putting new numbers, bitches. I'm just Actually, gonna... be, my favorite number is 16, so if I could pick it, I'd just, it'd be, it'd be 16. I'll just try fuck. I'll just get the letters <laughs> instead and like put them above the porch light, just fuck. And, and then I'll just put fuck Sun Falls Court. <laughs> <laughs> like, it works for Peter. I mean, yeah. you know, when we send mail to Peter. Dude, when people actually put the right... I, I sent Holly a Christmas card that came back to me. And I took a picture of it and I was like, what did I write wrong? And she's like, it's perfect. So I put the, a new stamp on it and sent it in the exact same... Yeah. I just pulled the yellow thing off and that time she got it. Weird. So, no, you can't do that in the U.S. People are too stupid here. It's true. Well, and we actually have like addresses, like real addresses. Does Peter actually have a real address? Or no, not? he's just in Does the middle it? of the fucking country. They're like middle of the fucking country, Ireland. This is roughly where it's at. It's by this restaurant. There is one pub in the town, and when I was talking to him a couple of days ago, he only lives a, there's maybe four or five houses like in yeah. this entire. I don't even like, think he lives area. a kilometer away from that, that pub. We look at the aerials. Yeah, that's he's true. pretty close. Yeah. So the mail goes to the pub because that's like the known landmark. <laughs> I don't know. No, the mail goes to I'm Dublin, sure and the guy from the pub picks it up once a week. <laughs> I should not. I it's it's very ask. realistic. It's, yeah, it's possible. possible. Drunky Joe, the mailman. Or yeah. once a week, maybe okay. they make a trek out and just throw it. They got, it comes. Know. It comes with the liquor that he orders, right? <laughs> and they go through like they go through a couple kegs a day. So there's at least three deliveries <laughs> a week to that that small bar. That small pub is popping. <laughs> the next time I call him, I'll ask. Look, there, look. That's a good there question. Is, there's nothing else to do there. Have you seen the pictures of the place? Oh, yeah. Like it's beautiful. But there ain't fuck all to do. I know. So. I want to go there just so that I don't have to do anything. They don't have a bowling alley. They don't have a movie theater. Fuck, I'm surprised they even have internet. And it's just <laughs> a pub. Like, what do you do? You go drink and you watch football. And they have fish and chips, I'm guessing, right? Uh, I mean. Doesn't every pub have fish and chips? No. <laughs> now they have, like, stews over there. Stews yeah, and Irish soda food. bread. Yeah. Soda bread, stews, Ooh, shepherd's I love pie. Soda bread. 
like uh cakes yeah i mean stuff like that is much more irish i i suppose like and they would have they would make the shepherd's pie like the traditional way that you you made with lamb yeah yeah because that's what it's fucking made with they don't have cows over there they might have a cow. No, they do actually. Peter, but, and I talked about. But they have they have a lot they have a lot more sheep than they do cows. Did you know sheep go to heaven and goats go to hell? Yeah, I heard that. Somewhere. Sean the sheep lives there. I've seen Hello? the show. What the fuck, man? This is devolved. <laughs> this is no longer about Utah. <laughs> All right. No, it's about Ireland. We should get back on track. Well, I say we just get into it. I, I think we should just talk about uh, Topaz Mountain because um, that is our first. Uh, do we want to just say it's Topaz Mountain or do we want to call it, you know. So, I got to start with Topaz Mountain. So I'm starting. So this, research. again, this is this is a monthly feature. Oh, yes. We're going to do it at the end of every month, uh, the last week of the month. And uh, it will be historic places in the state of Utah or historically significant yes. places. Perfect. Okay. So Topaz. So I start looking up Topaz and I'm seeing all of the rock expeditions and how to find different rocks. It's a good place to go rock camping. Where to go. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And then it dawned on me, oh, not that Topaz Mountain. No, it is. It it's is. The sa- yeah. It's the same. It's the very same. It's the so, very same. Yeah. First off, little known fact, maybe it's not little known fact, Topaz is actually the state gemstone or the state uh, the state precious stone. I don't fucking remember of Utah. Uh, Utah state gem is Topaz. Uh, and Topaz Mountain is named such because it does have a lot of topaz and red barrel and opals. Mm-hmm. And there's other stuff there, but those are the three really big ones all over the mountain. And it's open dig site. You can go. Yes. there. Well, there are spots that are claimed, but the majority of it, you can just go. It's rock all hound. public yep. land that you can go rock hound and the BLM's perfectly fine with that. Um, so there are, especially in the summer, quite a few people that go out there and rock hound. Topaz Mountain isn't famous because <laughs> it's Topaz Mountain. Um, it's famous because the other name that hits the area, there's a couple different ones, uh, but the Topaz War Relocation Center was located in uh, area. A, Let's just call it what it is. The Topaz Interment. Yeah, or the Central Utah Relocation Center. Relocation. I love those Bullshit. names that they gave them. They were the internment camps. It <laughs> they was, were. It was a really big internment camp, um, and uh, it was you know back in World War b- back in World War Two. Basically, here's what happened. Uh, the U.S. didn't want to get involved in a war overseas, even though we were already involved sending ships and uh, fucking supplies and supporting the Europeans that weren't German and all that stuff. Um, but then this thing happened uh, in 1941. Uh, where uh, a little-known military base out on the islands of Hawaii was bombed by the Japanese in an unprovoked attack. Uh, and basically, at that point, America said, oh, guess we're in this thing. Um, and the distrust for Japanese-Americans was out of this world. Um, basically, it's like the distrust for Muslims that happened after 9-11. Yeah. It was a very, very similar, similar type of fear-mongering. The difference Except where is, we weren't throwing that. <laughs> well, in the middle of America, and and probably the fact that Tope, we, no, we did that out on uh, in Guatemala or uh, uh, Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay. Bay. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually where we threw most of them. And in fact, 
Guantanamo Bay, we did actually abduct American citizens without formally charging them and stick their asses in Guantanamo Bay for years. And so it's not it's not totally dissimilar, but this was on a much larger scale. Yeah. And, and probably because of what happened in these internment camps, that's probably why that didn't happen in 9-11. Uh, Because of, you know, you know, 50 years later, we recognize like, oh, we're fucking idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Oops, we screwed up. Uh, But basically what happened was so after Pearl Harbor's bombed um, in February. So Pearl Harbor happened in December, December 7th, 1941. So in February, President Franklin Roosevelt signed executive order 9066. And that said. Basically, anyone of Japanese uh, descent or any Nisei Americans, which basically means uh, Japanese Americans that were born in America but born to Japanese immigrants, uh, they needed they needed to be rounded up and put in relocation centers because we needed to keep an eye on them in case they were spies, in case they were Japanese terrorists. Basically, terrorist wasn't really a word in the forties. Um, that actually became so. So Topaz War Relocation Camp, which was one of the bigger ones, uh, housed um, uh, primarily uh, San Francisco citizens. Um, 65% of the people in Topaz were Nisei, which means they were American-born citizens that had Japanese parents. Yes. Which is fucking it's so messed crazy. up. It's so <laughs> fucked up that we took American citizens and said, you got to move into this place for your country. Now, it wasn't a concentration camp. Right. No. They they weren't doing horrific scientific fucking experiments. They set them up in in essentially villages, um, but they had guards. Um, They were allowed to leave if they got work. Uh, They were allowed to go out into communities. Now, keep in mind, there's no community where Topaz Mountain is. Uh, It's Delta, Utah, which is about... Two almost actually almost three hours south of Salt Lake City. Yeah, and, and Delta I mean Delta Utah, what is the population out there? <laughs> um there's nothing. <laughs> I don't even know if there's a fucking I know there's a gas station. I don't know if there's a, a grocery store. Delta today, so this is this is now in twenty nineteen. Yeah. Eighty eight hundred people. So Topaz Mountain had over nine thousand. It actually was the third largest city in the state of Utah at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and it was an internment camp. Uh, and, and basically they, they, it was a very big chunk of land that they used for this. Right. So, yeah. So when you go, when you go down there, which we'll get to when we start, when we talk about the museum, but when you get on, cause you can go to the actual property, like there's nothing that stops you. You can walk the whole thing, but you don't realize how large it is until you go to the museum and you see their model set up and you're like, I literally walked like four of the houses. Yeah. Like it was a it was a twenty thousand acre designation. Six hundred and forty acres were living area. Six hundred and forty acres is a lot of fucking space. So I just wanna just on a side note, there were ten in America. Ten yeah, relocation ten centers. Uh ten big ones. There were yeah. a bunch of little ones yes, too. Yes, correct. They were assembly centers. <laughs> well, and the assembly, temporary, temporary. Camps. Well, and the, yeah, the assembly centers were really fucked up. The assembly centers, um, they, they, uh, that's where a lot of these people first went before they came to these camps, and they were basically assigned camps at that point. So it opened, ironically, September eleventh, nineteen forty-two. Uh, it had had forty-two blocks, twelve barracks in each, and each housing two hundred to three hundred. Internees. So that was a, I mean, it was its own village. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. So what, what did I say? 640 acres, right? Mm-hmm. That's a square mile. 
So it's basically a mile of, it's like a neighborhood, a, a, a full-size neighborhood in the Salt Lake Valley. Do you yeah. know why it got named Topaz? Because Abraham Relocation Center was too long to put on a postal form. Which was the first name. Right. <laughs> Actually, it was the second name, Central Utah Relocation Center. Oh, I thought Center that was Abraham the one was the first one, because Central Utah was one that stuck a little bit longer. <laughs> <clears throat> Whatever. But that's fucking, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, I mean, I don't know, do you want to get into some more of it, of, of what was in the, the little city uh, that they had? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So there, there were a bunch of houses, right? Like forty-two blocks were housing for internees. Now they were th- three different sizes. Yeah. yeah, but each each block housed two to three hundred people, and basically they had barracks that had um, five people in a room, like a twenty by twenty room. No running water, a nope. single light, and a, and a cold stove. Which, by the way, there are still stoves out on the property that you just see. Oh, really? That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. You know, ironically enough, that's the this is the exact same description of the house my dad grew up in. The government housing <laughs> yeah. for, for World War II. Well, because they had to throw them up, right? They yeah, just threw them fast. up uh-huh. super yeah. fast. And so, well, so five months. It took them five months to construct. It was $3 million. And yeah. to think to build that many structures so, in five months, it just so people kind of get a grasp, it takes five to six months to build a single house i didn't i didn't see this in the stuff that i looked through but who built it do you know like uh, who was building it because the war is going on so yeah i don't remember i don't remember who built it at, at that point i'm sure i want to say it, it was privately yeah bid out to contractors i don't think the i don't think the government built it i think they they were it. like build your own <laughs> No, well, they, no, yeah, it, no, I don't know. <laughs> but so, so one of the things that, to keep in mind, like these weren't traditional houses; these are basically barracks. They're, yeah, they're they're a bunch of empty rooms, and so two to three hundred people on a block. That block includes those barracks, plus it holds uh, the block, not the barrack, has uh, a recreation hall, mm-hmm. a mess hall. Uh, an office for the block manager, so whoever ran the block, and a combined laundry, toilet, and bathing facility. So a combined laundry, toilet, and bathing facility for two to three hundred people. A mess hall. You didn't make your own food. So no. So at the museum, they actually have one set up like outside that it that got they. I think they they might have moved over to the museum, and then. Like refurbished it to look like what it would ha- what it would have looked have, like, and it is so tiny. It's so tiny. They had four bathtubs and four showers for two to three hundred people on each block. So to actually purchase the land, just as a little bit of a side note, uh, when the government came through Delta to look for places to build these camps, uh, they found where it ultimately ended up being that they could acquire ninety five hundred acres from one individual. And 8,800 acres from Millard County. And so that's what they did. They bought half of it from a private person. And the other half belonged to the county. They paid a dollar an acre. Jesus. So I, I just saw that peak peak population was between 8,100 and 8,300. How many people did you say are there in 2021? In Delta? Yeah. Uh, 8,200, I think is what I said. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 8,800. Yeah, so, like, it wasn't any different. Like, that's just... It's interesting because it says that there were 11,000 that were processed into the camp, but peak population was 8,300. Yeah, well, the thing is, so 
one of the things that happened in that time frame in uh, the winter between 42 and 43, um, the government decided to hand out loyalty questionnaires to everyone in these um, these relocation mm-hmm. uh, centers, the internment, internment camps. Camp. <laughs> and the loyalty questionnaires, basically, they gave prisoners a couple options. They mm-hmm. said, declare your loyalty to the United States, uh, enlist in the military and go fight for us, um, or... Um, and also those families were still interred, even if the, even if they went and, yeah. Yeah. And then it's either that or you're considered disloyal and you become a prisoner essentially, which is really fucking messed up because they then send you instead of an internment camp, you go to a segregation camp at Tool Lake if you were found to be disloyal based on the loyalty questionnaire, which is, is reminiscent of, you know, the Red Scare back in the, mm-hmm. back in the eighties, uh, I guess not the eighties, like the sixties and seventies, the fifties, sixties and seventies. So very reminiscent of, of that in a lot of ways. Um, now, they had, you know, they had schools there. They had a high school. They had a couple of elementary schools, a 28-bed hospital, a couple churches, a community garden. Um, but this was not a good place by any stretch of the imagination. Well, to, and the other thing is most, well, not most, probably all of these people were forced to leave their homes and their businesses behind. Yeah, immediately. Like they were, they were given a trash bag to put their shit in and go no matter what. And so their homes and their businesses were looted. Oh, they were all fucking destroyed because people thought they were the enemy Mm -hmm. and their businesses were spray painted or painted. They're, you know, broken, destroyed, all their shit taken. Like you said, like it was, it was really bad. So they, the the inmates, as they called them, um, still raised farms. They had cattle, they had pigs, um, crops, vegetables. They could get, there were a bunch that got agricultural jobs in the area. Well, yeah, I was going to say the local farmers were able to hire out to help harvest and plant throughout the And that was, I mean, that was good because then you could have a job and also you could leave the internment camp uh, to go work. Right. So. And, and they, I mean, they had a high school. They had two elementary schools. Yeah, that's what I I just read. <laughs> Sorry, I'm distracted. You're okay. You're okay. <laughs> um, so I here it was one, just very important to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things uh, that, that struck me that I didn't realize, um, you know, I know a fair amount about these camps, but I didn't realize it was actually the Topaz camp uh, that that um, was responsible for all of the camps basically going away. So, um, there was an incident, uh, and there was a, there was a, one of the internment prisoners was shot by an overzealous guard that was trigger happy. Yes. Um, and basically immediately after that happened, I mean, the guard was eventually found not guilty of murder, but he resigned, blah, blah, blah. Um, but all of, uh, uh, basically immediately what happened was, they backed way off. They started letting them do basically whatever they wanted. Well, everybody went on strike. They're yeah. like, we're in, until you relax. Because this is, this is Security. insane. Yeah. yeah. We're, th- th- you are, you are now creating the situation yeah. you were fighting on the other side of well, the world. Well, you're telling us world. we're not your prisoners. And but. they gave him a big funeral, which was also part of the protests. Yeah. Um, and so, but because of that, there were two attorneys that actually filed lawsuits because they're U.S. citizens. So Fred Korematsu and Mitsui Endo, um, both challenged their internment in court. And this all kinds of came as a result of, uh, that whole shooting incident. Um, so, uh, Korematsu's case was heard and rejected by the Supreme Court. And these happened really close together. Um, and, um, 
they they basically said uh, whenever they saw the case, they they very lim- they limited their judgment quite a bit, uh, right? So then the Indo case happened, uh, and the Indo case was actually upheld, uh, and basically that ended internment camps. And both of those gentlemen lived long lives, long activist lives. And so I, I just didn't realize that those guys were both out of the Topaz internment camp. So that's um, pretty incredible. It, it's pretty cool to to read that. That uh, I mean, I guess something good came out of the Utah internment camp. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, at the time, the the governor at the time and and people at the time were really against it in the state of Utah because they all hated the Japanese and they were like, well, if you don't want to keep them because they're not safe in California, why the hell should we house them here in Utah? Mm-hmm. Like, right. We don't want your prisoners. We'll take your nuclear waste now, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know kind of the same idea right yeah um you know um here's something else that i found really fucked up about the internment camp stuff the census bureau um actually had a big hand in rounding up all of those japanese americans um and it, it really kind of struck me because you know we just went through a census year it's still not done Mostly in part thanks to COVID, uh, but also thanks and uh, there, there's there were questions as to what we could ask on it. Um, there was a big uh, question on if they were going to include uh, immigrants as part of the counts for representation. Um, it sounds like Biden's going to sign an executive order or did sign an executive order to include them in, mm-hmm. in, in the census numbers for population and areas, uh, whereas the Trump administration had had uh, ordered the Census Bureau not to do that. Um, but it, it's just interesting because of that kind of data, they were very easily and quickly able to round up all those people. Uh, and um, that's just really fucked up to think that that's you know, that that was used for such a horrific action, uh, honestly, in my opinion. So, well, do you know what else is very interesting that we didn't learn about this growing up? It was not taught in Utah history in a Utah history class. Yeah, I wouldn't know. I, I didn't, didn't learn about, I know you're not from here, but I didn't learn about it until, I don't know, six years ago, maybe. So, you know, unless you had, so like my cousins have somebody that was on the registry, you know, I, it was like a great aunt or an aunt or something like that. You wouldn't have known about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned about it in Wyoming. Um, it wasn't like anything super crazy, but as part of history, you know, we were taught about the Heart Mountain camp, which was mm-hmm. up in, in Wyoming up by the Montana border, kind of what east of Yellowstone, just, just, just east of Yellowstone on a big tract of land there. Um, and yeah, we were, so we were taught about Heart Mountain, um, but, uh, it was very brief. I mean, it was probably less time spent on it than we've talked about it now. Yes. Um, which is, it's really disappointing because it's, that's a piece of history. I know it's, it's hard to hear about as a, as a citizen that that was something that we went through, but, um, it's important because we don't learn, you know, we don't learn those lessons unless we talk about them. Right? Well, it's not something that we should, sweep under the rug and forget about either no exactly exactly because we don't want to go through that again right like we we, we kind of did with 9-11 like i was saying like a lot of people american citizens you know regardless they were swept up and sent to basically prison without any kind of due process uh and that was a big part of the the actual lawsuits that were filed as well by indo and and right. uh, the other guy. Uh, a couple of other notable dates. 1976, the Japanese American Citizen League erected a monument near the side of the camp. Um, 
I got really turned around while we were down there, but I think it's on the east side, <laughs> uh, which is weird because even though you're surrounded by mountains, like you're really surrounded by mountains, you get turned around. Um, in 1988, President Reagan signed a redress bill into law, which was an apology to those who are interned um, and called on Congress to budget compensation for the survivors. And then... In 2007, the Topaz site was listed as a National Historic Landmark by the National Park Service. Back back to the Reagan thing. They did end up paying any living Mm -hmm. uh, people that were in the internment camps $20,000 each. Yeah. Which... Restitution. Woo, fucking who, 20 grand for sticking your ass in prison and destroying your life. Right. Um, And then in 2017, the Topaz Museum um, opened, so... And you can go see it. Not right now, though. It's closed. They're closed for COVID? Yeah. I, I did but, come across kind of some fun, interesting facts. They have that many people going there that they need to close for COVID? It's not a, like, it's not a huge building. What you the, could, fu- you could what go the fuck to, else do the people of Delta have to you, do except sit in the museum with you no You could one go, so you can go down to the, um, you can go to the, the sites. The sites for sure. And, and it's actually pretty incredible. But it's just the footprints left, right? There's no actual buildings. No buildings. Uh, like I said, you can see some of the, like there still was an oven in the area we were at. I found a button in the dirt. Just a regular like, oven. Not like the Nazi Germany ovens, guys. <laughs> we didn't quite get there. <laughs> Anyways, what are your interesting facts? So just Jeremy? some interesting facts. So in the, in December of 1940 or 44, let's see. Hold on. Yes. Uh, there was one of the families that was out having a picnic in the nearby area, and I'm going to slaughter the name, Akio Yujihara and Yoshio Nishimoto found a 1,164-pound meteorite in the Western Mountain. Wow. Uh, and it is the ninth largest meteorite found in the U.S., and it is now in, at display in the Smithsonian. That's awesome. That's flipping <laughs> rad. Actually, that's a really so cool fact. I mean, Did they get paid for that find? I hope so. I doubt it. Probably not. No, <laughs> did you hear what we just talked about? Yeah, no, they didn't. <laughs> so they, they also had a newspaper. Yeah, uh, they did have a yes. little newspaper. That that that's actually where the majority of the the records of daily life come from. Is they, they, and the guy that wrote for the newspaper had to pay rent because he was making two hundred twenty. Pay rent. I'm gonna put you in prison and make you pay yeah, rent for it. Basically. So in this, in this, that was before that was before the federal prison system that was privatized, <laughs> where they made a dollar, you know, pennies on the hour, plates. yeah, yeah, and panties and everything else. So oh, they make all kinds of shit in those prisons. Oh yeah. So in the in this newspaper, they would they would talk about weekly things going on, high school games, local events, uh, and they have copies of them online. I think through the University of Utah, you can get a hold of some of them. And, oh wow. And see some of the original. And they have a lot of that stuff down at the museum too when it opens and you can go. They're just in display cases. It's really cool. Old like Letterman jackets and yearbooks and stuff like that. So they also uh, put into, so some of the conditions weren't the greatest. So they, so the, the people living there put together their, their knitting mittens to ward off Chill blains. I don't know. Chill, chill. I don't know what that means. It got cold, and so the women of the group put together a little knitting group and knitted gloves for everybody in the community. So they did a lot of things because they were somewhat forced to, but at the same time, to make it a community, there were a lot of things that went on that they did for each other to help each other to get through it. Chill blains is the information of the blood vessels in your skin to cold exposure. There you go. So. I, I just was looking. There were none of these camps 
outside of like basically the inner mountain and, and west coast louisiana yeah that louisiana was the furthest and, east um there, i mean there was was alabama s- that had or, or arkansas so there was, yeah, there was, there was a relocation center in Arkansas and that is as far, there were yep. two yep. and that is as far east as they went. And I think those are the two that, um, like George Takei has been really an activist for, for them. And I think he did a, a whole documentary and a, um, like a Broadway show about it. Yeah. And he, and that, I think the ones in Arkansas are the ones that he was really involved with there, that information. There were also, there were also some other things. So there were like Justice Department detention camps. Um, and the, there were a couple <laughs> the on gathering the, there, there were a couple on the East Coast and the ones that were on the East Coast actually also housed German American and Italian American detainees. Where were those at? Does it um, show? So there was one in Forest Park, Georgia. Um, and then there was, um, uh, there was, just the naming convention of all these, uh, citizen isolation centers were for cons- people considered to be problem inmates. That was, there was one in, uh, Moab, uh, the Dalton Wells Center in Moab was one of those. Mm. Um, there were also, um, some army facilities that held people. So Camp Blanding in Florida, um, Camp Forest in Tennessee, uh, Livingston in Louisiana, McCoy in Wisconsin, um, you know, Fort Howard in, in Maryland, like most of the, U.S. Army facilities on the East Coast and throughout the country also housed uh, detainees. I, I think that the majority were on the West Coast because of the populations in California. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, Japan's across the ocean right. from California. Well, Fort Douglas, Fort Douglas held. It actually had a crew of Nazi submarine. Also had some prisoners of war. Prisoner of wars. And they were the ones that were all killed in the same day by... Uh, disgruntled. No, that there was one also in uh Salina as well. Was there? That was mm-hmm. German, and they're the German dudes are buried up at Fort Douglas. Yeah. So there's like twenty of them. They're all killed on the mm-hmm. same day because there was a disgruntled guard who yep. went in and that was shot in Salina. Them yep. That's uh, and man. that space is really small too. I went there on the way home from Capitol Reef, and you're like, this is crazy. That all just like happened <laughs> in that little corner of this mountain. Yeah, it's. It's a really shameful part of American history. I don't want to just say that Utah history. I mean, it's a part of Utah history because of it being, you know, one of them being here. Right. But it's it's really a, a very shameful part of American history, unfortunately. But we're talking about it because you know about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely Utah related. Like I said, I was actually really surprised because I've, I've read quite a bit about it. Um, and I was surprised. Uh, I had not realized that the Supreme Court case that eventually ended it was based out of Utah. We got a lot of mm-hmm. records of Supreme Court cases originating from here and overturning stuff or, yep. or stopping bad things. So one other, I know it doesn't sound positive, but, but one other, I guess, kind of positive thing is that the prisoners were able to create their own co-op. Uh, and they invested $5,000 of capital, and in it they started barbershops, radio repair shops, shoe shops, dry goods shops, uh, and stores that grossed almost $2,700 on its opening day. So they were they were able to create a community. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a prison, but it wasn't. It was like, it was like a, like a low-security white-collar prison for the yeah. most part. And then sometimes people got shot. Yeah. So they did. They did hire all of the the individuals within the camp to be the teachers. Yeah. Um. To to do all of the different work. Yeah. They so, didn't want white people in there. Yeah. No. Corrupted. They're like have your own space, but do it in this in this blockage. Space. Have your yeah. space. Just go ahead and stay inside this cage, and right. then, you know, have so a normal community. They hired 
trained carpenters to come in and, and add to the buildings, finish some of the buildings, insulate the buildings, uh, like I said, teachers, doctors. So doctors, a number of doctors were specifically sent to each camp so that they had their own. Again, Japanese people know ja- Japanese uh, anatomy better than white people know right. Japanese anatomy. Right. It's and, different. And when they tore everything down, I, th- I don't remember if I asked the the uh, the tour director, the uh, museum director, but like local people just took took the barracks and used them as like barns and, and yeah. stuff like that. So. Free free shit. Yep. Take the Japanese out. Let's take this shit again. So we took all their shit from their original home and fucked that up. We stuck them somewhere for a couple of years. Most of them had nothing to go back to after that. Uh, and then, then we're going to kick them out of that space once we're done. And, um, we're not going to worry about paying them unless they can live another 40, 40 something years. <laughs> if they manage to make it another 40 years, we'll give them 20 grand. In the 80s. It says they salvaged all the water pipes as well as utility Oh, yeah, dude. They poles. fucking took everything. There's nothing there. Like Jess said, there's there's some it's coal cement. stoves. Yeah, it's cement. And there's like, concrete footings. Yep. And that's about it. Uh, and then there's, you know, Topaz Mountain where you can go rock hound if you want. So that is our historically significant place for uh, this first month of 2021. Um it's uh it's really shitty a part of history, but it's something that we should talk about, and it's it's a big part of of Utah's history. I mean, hell, uh, we've talked about the Mormons massacring Native Americans and blaming it on other Native Americans or getting them to help. So there's some pretty fucking dark shit in our history of this state. So, um, yeah, I think we'll uh we'll talk to our, our guest. Um, who's probably going to be a lot more upbeat than that story. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll see you back in a few. Okay. With us, uh, this week we have, uh, Mike Christensen. Um, so Mike, are you the, the founder or, or an active member or what's your, what's your position with the Utah rail passenger association? I am the founder and the executive director. Excellent. Excellent. And, just, uh, I mean, briefly, can you tell everyone what the Utah Rail Passenger Association is? Well, uh, we are an uh, advocacy and education nonprofit that is working to make people in Utah aware that there are uh, transportation options available that we're not taking advantage of. And that's probably the best way to sum it up in a nutshell. So how did you how did you come up with this idea to create this nonprofit and and, and focus in on, on transportation in particular? And were you also surprised that it didn't already exist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there wasn't a any any group really uh occupying this 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 niche. So uh, that really easily lended itself to to starting this, and uh, basically, uh, I have to rewind uh, a ways back. And well, I'll just I'll just give you a little bit of background on me. I uh, I was born in California, uh, in in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, and uh, lived there until I was ten years old. And my parents got divorced. My it ended up that my dad and I moved to Idaho to the little town that he grew up in. And uh, so I did my teenage years in high school there. And what, what town was that? 
It's a little town called Malad. Oh, I know Malad. I know Malad. Yes. Oh, we know Malad very well. I, I was born in Pocatello. My family, most of my family comes from Pocatello, so I'm well aware oh. of Malad. And my friend awesome. grew up there and owns a small business there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Malad's claim to fame is that it has the number one, number two, and number four stores and lottery lottery ticket sales in Idaho. Yeah, so, coming up from Utah. Our, our friend, uh, our friend Kelly, who we've had on the show before, says our tax dollars or our lottery ticket dollars paid for his education. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it is. It is home to the Utah Lottery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, and that in Fish Lake, I think, is another one. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we we could tell whenever the the Powerball was up because the parking lots of the convenience stores would be filled with license plates from Utah. <laughs> so all, all two of them. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that, that gives you a brief background on where I came I think, from. I think Malad has two stop signs now, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, more than that. <laughs> actually, if I remember right, there's only one four-way stop in town. See? Yeah. Living the, <laughs> living the high life. So I know exactly where it is. <laughs> well, I mean, truthfully, though, with Malad, did you have to come down into Utah to grocery shop? Or was there an actual grocery store there in Malad? Because it is really that small of a town. Yeah. Well, this, this is actually headed kind of in the direction that I wanted things to go, that... Uh, there were not a lot of options. I mean, we, we did there, – there there is a grocery store there. In fact, when I was younger, we had two grocery stores. So you could get uh, some of the things that you needed in town. But uh, we would often have to go out of town basically for anything specialist medical care or uh, yeah, anything that you couldn't get in, in a small town that – had limited services to begin with and a lot of services drying up over time. So we would typically go either to Pocatello or to Logan or even, even beyond to Salt Lake city uh, about once a week or so for something. Wow. And a lot of Pocatello is not too bad. That's about what? 45 minutes. ish. Yeah. It's, not it's about the same distance you're going to Pocatello or to Logan. Uh, but, but Salt uh, Lake, that's probably closer to an hour-ish. No, that's longer, dude. About, about an hour and a hours. half to get yeah. to, to Salt Lake City. So that was big time. That was going to the big city. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, going to Salt Lake, that was that was always a big deal. That was going for school clothes. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, well, one of my, my big experiences that that really shaped my thinking uh i had the opportunity to spend time in germany twice while i was growing up once uh the summer between my junior and senior years of high school uh i went to germany as an exchange student uh, for a month and then two years later i went on a mission to germany and was there almost two years and those experiences where I was deeply immersed in public transit every day, uh, that really kind of changed my perspective on, on transportation and really challenged some of the ideas that like Americans are 
in love with their cars and uh, basically the, the idea that uh, a car is always a necessity. And uh, so since then, I've learned that uh, cars are really only a necessity when when we uh, create our infrastructure in a way that makes them a necessity. And years later, I went back to school and did a Master of City and Metropolitan Planning at the University of Utah, which I finished up about three years ago. And then it was after that I decided to go ahead and establish this nonprofit. And the, the reason was because my, my professional project for my master's program was uh, researching what we could do in Utah as far as expanding uh, passenger rail goes uh, using existing infrastructure that's already there. And uh, that, that led me to want to establish the nonprofit and see if I could um, actually make it a real uh, thing in the real world rather than just an idea. So one comment I have, most of the European cities have it together. They've got it to where you don't have yeah. to have a car. Um, it's up the, the work, school, grocery stores, everything is within a reach, reachable space, within walking distance, taking distance, or they have public transportation in, in such a way. Well, even, even cities back east, bigger cities back east like New York, you know, Boston, it's the same thing. Like you, you don't see quite as many like we have in Utah, a Harmon's down the street. It's like a mega grocery store. Um, you know, in New York City and the boroughs, those don't really exist at that same level. They're much smaller neighborhood grocery stores. There, there are big grocery stores that you can travel out to, but most everything you need is within walking distance. Exactly. Which I, and I, found, I found it funny when they came up with the concept of daybreak, and in my mind, they did it absolutely backwards. <laughs> you don't put on all of the housing first and then try to throw in some businesses. You need to create an epicenter for a reason to be there and then put the housing around it. <laughs> Daybreak's actually a really interesting case study. Uh, <laughs> one of the classes that I took in my master's program uh, was actually called Intro to New Urbanism. And we use Daybreak, which is a, a new urbanist uh, uh, development, to actually well, as as an example in the class, and we also one of our assignments was to go to Daybreak and uh, grade it based on adherence to uh, new urbanist principles. And the grade, the average grade that everyone in the class came up with, was actually a C minus. That's probably so generous. <laughs> it uh, Daybreak is is great for. Uh, showing a better way to do suburbs, but it still fails in uh, not, well, one, not, not having enough density. And because of that lack of density, you don't get uh, amenities like corner grocery stores and mm -hmm. things like that. 
And in fact, I at, at one point went on a few dates with a woman who uh, lives in Daybreak, and she summed it up really well because uh, she said it's a great place to live uh, for going on walks and especially walking my dog. But I still have to get in a car and drive three miles if I want to buy a gallon of milk. That's the thing. And you look at all the roads that they've had to create coming in and out of it. The corridor, um, the, the expressways, they've had to actually create more roads because of it when the whole concept was to get rid of the needs for, for all the roads. But it, it's backfired as far as that goes, like horribly backfired. People that live in it, that's their biggest complaint is if they work on the east side, they're like, it takes me just as long to get from here to the east side as it would going from Riverton to downtown. Because at least north to south, there's infrastructure. East to west, there's nothing. That's the complaint right. I have. Even, mm. even living, because we True. live out off of 56 West, and there's there's one freeway of any any real worth and that's down at one and then if you want to take tracks you can either do it now at least it goes out to valley fair mall uh which is <laughs> i-215 which is still not the west side like the, the it's it's really interesting to me where they think oh people, valley fair mall is the west side babe yeah yeah for people <laughs> in the 80s but you know because like valley fair mall is like 22nd <laughs> west roughly yeah. and and that particular stretch of road like 35th south goes out to Bacchus highway which is roughly 8400 west uh so you're stopping more than half of the valley from from having mass transit like that's that's one of my biggest complaints about mass transit in, in the community in Salt Lake County itself is, you know, they built the tracks light rail, which is really great if you live along the I-15 corridor, because for the longest time, that was it. You know, otherwise, it is just as effective from a, a cost perspective, a time perspective. It is, it is way more efficient for you to drive there yourself, which is way worse for the environment, but it, it costs too much to, to ride tracks. Uh, versus just paying for the gas uh, and and the time, you know. Well, and you didn't know we had such a big opinion on this, did you? We have huge opinions <laughs> on transit. So, so I, so Chris and Bree, for a perfect example, have timed it before. For you to try to take a bus from your house here in Kearns to downtown takes what? At least an hour with three transfers. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about that that's convenient. And and that's only if we catch the bus out here, which only runs every 30 minutes. Right. So, like, my daughters went to Juan Diego, and the first one that went out there, she, of course, couldn't couldn't drive when she started school because she was only in ninth grade. And she, you know, had to wait and get on the buses and stuff after she got off track. So, tracks was great because there's a stop right there by Juan Diego. Now, but when she now, was, there wasn't when she first started. You know either. what? That's right. They she had, had to. Bus to they bust them to it. The the other stop, but she w- then she would have to get on the bus to get up here, and it, it took her an hour and a half to get home after school, like an mm-hmm. hour and a half. And that's just from one tracks to that, a bus. Yeah, yeah, that and and you know tracks wasn't bad, but the bus to get out here was was terrible. And there's a bus stop literally right by our house, and it would still take her that long. And when she got her car. She was so happy, and she thought her sister should have to suffer through that transit thing <laughs> because that was a huge hardship for her. It was. She's like, Mom, I, you know, I'm transferring too much to actually sit down and get anything done. Mm-hmm. It's it's uncomfortable when the when the weather is bad because none of the stops out here are covered. 
you know so she's like it's it just it sucked so i'm curious i want to we're going to get into mass transit really in depth here but i kind of want to take a, a little bit of a step back so you grew up in malad um you know was it just as soon as high school was over it's time to go to college and i'm coming to utah or was there something else that happened in the interim there? All, almost i uh i i ended up uh, going to rick's college well it's BYU Idaho now, but it was still uh, Rick's College when I went there, uh, which kind of dates me a little bit. But uh, I, I eventually, after I finished uh, my my associates at Rick's, I transferred to BYU and haven't left Utah yet. So uh, I've been here in Utah uh, ever since 1999, and I've been in Salt Lake City ever since 2003. So uh, I, I never intended to to settle uh, in Utah permanently, but that's just the way that the winds blew. So, and what I mean before you before you jumped in with both feet, you know, doing this nonprofit, what were you doing, you know, prior to that, prior to getting your master's? You know, Something had to pay the bills, right? I had uh, gotten a, a bachelor's degree in geography with an emphasis in geographic information science. Uh, at BYU. And so I was working, uh, doing, making maps and managing geographic data uh, for a long time. And unfortunately, that field has been shrinking because they keep making the software easier to use. <laughs> and so I kind of realized, well, most of the jobs were basically becoming software development jobs, and I am not a coder, so uh, yeah, I was I was struggling uh, about ten years ago to to stay employed all the time, and eventually realized that I needed to do something different. So I, I went to grad school to to uh, kind of make a, a slight career adjustment. But I, I had had in my head uh, the idea that I wanted to become a transportation planner because I was seeing opportunities that were being overlooked uh, a lot here in the West. So I'm, I'm curious what, what your proposal, knowing that you have some, some background in city planning and, and geography, quite a bit of background in geography, um, you know, what would you do? Let's, let's start with Salt Lake Valley uh, in particular. What would you do to solve the east-west problem that we have? Because there's now, I mean, there's now a, uh, a tracks line that does run east-west all the way at the south end of the valley, um, you know, where we don't really need it because there's like <laughs> two, there's, there's Bangator on that side of the valley that takes people out there too. But, um, you know, it runs kind of diagonal across the south end of the valley out to daybreak surprise surprise uh, but you know other than that for for the rest from like basically like magna and west valley all the way through south jordan uh, <laughs> what would you i mean what would you recommend for east west transit because you know mass transit really stops at like that i-15 corridor um mm -hmm. you know there's there's north south with bangator and now with legacy and bacchus has been there forever um but but really there's no east west uh, on this side of the valley it's that's a difficult question to to answer. Uh, there there's a couple different ways to approach it. Uh, one, well, it's it's difficult because the the uh, the density of especially in in the southwest 
corner of the valley. Uh, it's not really high enough to really support tracks to the way that it should. And um, it it would be great to to have a whole lot more buses, especially east west buses. Uh, but the, the, the underlying problem is that it's not really designed to be really conducive to transit. And uh, uh, one of the, like, if I could go back in time, I would, would uh, try and, and preemptively fix things by uh, actually changing the, the land use to be higher density and actually... Uh, a great thing to do would be to make the correct connection between transportation and land use. And the, I think the best way to explain that is that cities have responsibility for land use planning, and they, they do that through zoning and other uh, land use ordinances. But we have given over our transportation planning to um, regional entities like UDOT and the Wasatch Front Regional Council and also the transit aspect of it to UTA. And the problem that results is that uh, cities are basically planning to be auto-oriented and they're not growing in a way that is conducive and supportive to transit. So I think that's the the best way to kind of explain the problem. And uh, uh, like you, you see a lot of problems, like a lot of the, the, the Salt Lake Valley is laid out in, in mile squares where you have your main arterial streets every mile on the grid. And you have these mile squares of uh very typical suburban street patterns where you've got lots of loops and cul-de-sacs and the way that all that is laid out uh, makes it, well, first it makes it difficult to walk anywhere uh, because you, you really can't walk in a straight line anywhere. And uh, so that, that kills the, the walkability. So that means if you're going to go anywhere, you basically have to drive. It also kills the transit connectivity because uh, buses basically have to stay on those arterial streets that are on the mile grid because if they actually enter the neighborhoods, then it's going to really slow them down. Uh, but the problem is that sometimes people can live uh, very close as the crow flies to the nearest bus stop, but to actually walk there through this tangled <laughs> suburban street grid, uh, yeah, it, it ends up making a walk uh, a lot longer, which makes it less likely that people are going to take transit. So uh, there's a lot of the Salt Lake Valley where I kind of wish that we could just bulldoze it and start from scratch. Uh, but that's not really an option. So there's there's going to be parts of the valley that are always going to struggle with with really being uh, conducive to transit. But on the other hand, one of the big opportunities that we have, uh, as you go throughout the valley, there are lots of 
uh, strip malls and shopping, older shopping centers that have basically just kind of like collapsed and are pretty much vacant. And those are actually excellent opportunities for redevelopment to build something uh, that has a lot of housing and has some some uh, retail and, and uh, you know, shopping like grocery stores and stuff. And also uh, use those, uh, basically connect all of those redevelopment opportunities with uh, some form of high-frequency transit. And uh, that's, that's probably one of our best opportunities to get more people onto transit. That's a good, good long answer. So yeah, <laughs> there's no, there's no real solution, is what I just heard. <laughs> right, it's... we see like continued, like missed opportunities happening. I mean, this is a another north south opportunity, but we see the Mountain View corridor being built with lots of like stops and goes and stuff, and and nothing being like we're still. There's just like it's like whoever it's is in, like it's, a bangeter. Whoever right. is in charge of of UDOT in particular, which is responsible for those roads, they're they're idiots. Like they do not like I, the 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 city and in, in the West that I've always said is whoever is doing their planning of transportation has been really quite good. Is the people down in in Phoenix? Their their <laughs> highway system. They're they're building for the future when they build it because I remember you know they put in one loop uh, and then you're like well, no one's ever going to use that it's so far out and five years later everything was built up to it uh, and so they they start building their other loop and it again you know it's in that same respect but out here you know they're like okay well it's time with daybreak and these other communities that are getting built you know even further west as suburban sprawl continues to stretch in in, in Salt Lake Valley let's build Mountain View corridor. Well, let's only build it from here to here. Let's not build it all the way across the valley. Well, now that's changed, and they're bulldozing houses in West Valley to to build it all the way down to. to let's only make it a couple of lanes. Well, but then later, let's yeah yeah. So <laughs> later, like clearly, we're already at a point where we probably should be thinking about widening it to a third lane on each side, and and let's put in stoplights, right? Let's put in stoplights instead of just making it a, a you know a full interstate style roadway. Uh, with with overpasses, while we have all the land to do the overpasses and nothing here to to disrupt anything, and at the same time they're building all these additional lights, they're in the middle of transitioning Bangor Highway to be almost all overpasses because they tried the weird traffic pattern that just did not really help. Um, for much more than like a year in alleviating the crazy congestion on Bangor, and so now you've got freeway overpasses which. I got to tell you, as a person that drives across two of them to get to work every time I go into the office, they're amazing. I don't stop. I I, I get to where I'm going uh, really fast. There's a lot less angry drivers. Some of that might be because COVID and and there's just fewer drivers, but there are way less angry drivers on Bangor now. Um, But now, you know, they've redone the intersection at 6200 twice, and finally now they're doing the right thing and doing the overpass, but it's the same thing. The city planners, you know, they let, they knew they were going to do this overpass. They let a business build a new building there, a dollar tree right where the overpass was. And literally within six months of that dollar tree being there, they had open public comment on the demolition they were planning to do, which included that <laughs> entire building. Like, well, and, oh, and throughout, that. and throughout all of this, no mass transit solutions are being made for any mm-hmm. of it. 
they have not thought about improving how that's how that's going to work. So like when I'm coming up 62nd and it's still two lanes right after Bangor, every bus that stops on the side stops an entire lane of traffic Mm -hmm. because there's no shoulder. There's nothing they can do about it. It's a main thoroughfare. And even on 56th where they did the, the flex lanes, they're all lanes. So when you've got a bus heading up there, when they stop, they're stopping a, a lane of traffic. Versus like 35th where they've built the bus lane up the middle. Right. So still with all of this and all of the problems and all of the corrections that they're doing, nobody's stopping and thinking, maybe we should think about all of these things before. <laughs> we start doing this because it's mm-hmm. super costly, right? Like it, it costs a lot to just build it in the first place, but to go back and, and, and take out what you've built and build something else and then, or, or to, to buy out homes or, or, or businesses to create that space, it's costing us more money. Whereas if they could, if they did what you said, like where cities and, and, transportation get together and go, you know, these are the ideas that we have. Okay. These are the things that you need to do to make mass transit, you know, easier. Okay. We can, we can work those into our plans. Nobody's doing that. They're not talking to each other. It's kind of like the Republicans and the Democrats right now. Nobody's talking to each other. We're better when we work together. Yes, exactly. And, uh, one of the things that, uh, that complicates all this is that it is kind of not so much UDOT that dictates the construction of highways in Utah, but it is actually the construction companies that, uh, that dictate that. And I, I had the opportunity uh, back in 2012 to do a temporary job working for the Utah legislature uh, during that general session. And uh, I ran into an old friend, uh, one of the the missionaries that I had served with in Germany, uh, who was a lobbyist for a professional lobbying company. And his assignment was to get the Utah legislature to allocate uh, a whole bunch of money for building, uh, well, I was actually rebuilding uh, I-15 between Lehigh and Spanish Fork. (laughs) (laughs) And And for some reason decided to start on the Spanish Fork end. (laughs) Right. And, uh, of course, he was being employed by construction companies. And... uh, yeah, unfortunately, our construction lobby really dictates to the legislature that Utah always needs to be building new highways. And uh, there's not really a whole lot of, of thought given to whether or not we actually need it or at what point in our growth do we need it. And uh, it... Uh, it, no one really looks to see if it's that good of a return on investment also. So, uh, do, do yeah. We have, does Front Runner Service even go out down to Utah County into Point of the Mountain, like yeah. Lehigh and stuff now? Yeah. Yeah, it goes down all the way to Provo. Uh, that was opened in 2012. 
Yeah, I mean that's a that's a I mean that's a good piece, and I it's it's crazy that with the massive amount of expansion that's happened, in particular right at you know right over the point of the mountain in Lehigh, with all the big tech companies, uh, all the stuff that's being built there, that there's not been more attention paid to getting people to Lehigh, not via surface roads. Exactly, that's actually one of the big concerns that I have about uh, the redevelopment of uh, the soon-to-be-vacated prison in Draper, mm-hmm. uh, that we have this huge chunk of land, and I am concerned about whether the people that are in charge of that uh, really have the vision to to do the correct thing. Uh, uh, I, I worry that there's not going to be enough enough transit uh, available and it, and integrating it properly. Uh, otherwise, Are you river bottom because that's what you're going to get. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it it goes to the highest bidder, and the highest bidder does what they want, and it really doesn't matter how that affects anybody else. They're the highest bidder, and they take the land and they do with it as they please. I mean, there is a big committee that is 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 in charge of the development of of that area there in Bluffdale, um, but you know, knowing the people that are on those those various subcommittees that are that are working on that, um, it's going to end up being a lot like River Bottom. That's right. going to be very similar to River Bottom. I have a feeling. So, so what are some of the things that your organization are trying to do and or improve? Well. Uh, First off, we're not so focused on the Wasatch Front itself um, because, I mean, there's there's problems with, with the transit not being what we'd like, and we realize that's also a problem with, with the cities not having the right land use to be conducive to that. But at least there is something uh, here along the Wasatch Front what uh, what I'm really looking at is beyond the Wasatch Front, getting around the rest of the state and also connecting to other states. And uh, the the routes, if, if you go on my, my website, which is utahrpa.org, uh, there is a map on there that shows the, the proposal that we're working towards. And we want to use existing uh, Union Pacific freight tracks to run uh, passenger trains north to Logan and southwest to Cedar City and southeast to Grand Junction. And unfortunately, you can't take a train to St. George because there are no railroad tracks going to St. George. So that's something that I'm hoping that this would uh, start a conversation about. Uh, so in the meantime, in order to get to St. George, you'll have to transfer to a bus uh, uh, at Cedar City. And uh, we also would like to get a uh, connection to Moab because that's a huge uh, tourism center. And there are railroad tracks. There's a spur that, that goes uh, about three miles from Moab. But that location is in the midst of a uranium tailings cleanup project. <laughs> so at least for the time being, we are proposing that there be uh, a connecting bus that'll take you from the station in Green River uh, out to Moab. Uh, and then is there, once, is there a rail line out to Wendover? 
There actually is, mm-hmm. and that's kind of yeah. one of the later phases because uh, eventually I'd like to look at connecting with other states so that we can take trains to Las Vegas, Reno. I think, a train, I think a train to Wendover would be super successful. <laughs> so is, that, yeah. is it more like a, is it more like the, the track system or front runner or or is it it have to be like front runner because he's talking about using existing, existing train, like, train right tracks. well actually it would be more like Amtrak yeah. and in fact it probably would be Amtrak um, and uh, so it would be trains that would be even more comfortable from front than, than front runner the seats would be more comfortable I'd take uh, a train to Vegas I would too yes in fact. One of the reasons why I don't go to places like Vegas uh, very often is just because of the drive. And uh, I just am not all that enthused about if, sitting if, in a car for five hours. If you've driven to Vegas recently, but once you, I mean, it's actually fine once you get down to Provo proper because the traffic really kind of dies out for the most part, unless you're driving back on a Sunday mm-hmm. uh, and then like Nephi is just garbage on. Um, but like driving down there is usually okay, but holy crap, St. George in particular, St. George is just a nightmare. Now they have grown mm-hmm. so yeah. much and they have so little infrastructure. It is absolutely horrible to drive around down there now. And we, I mean, we've been down there a lot in the last few years because, you know, Sean was going to school down there. Uh, and it is, it is super busy all the time and, and just crazy to drive around in. Yeah, St. George is one place that I think about a lot because there's not really a lot of planning or any push to to bring uh, better transit to St. George. And uh, it's growing rapidly, and it's, it's uh, uh, kind of scary that there's not any plan for that. In fact, if uh, if we were to build a rail line that would connect from Cedar City through St. George and back into Vegas, I would love to see some component of that uh, integrating some type of like commuter rail that would get people um, between like Hurricane and St. George and Santa Clara. Is there a yeah. rail line that, that exists that goes from Vegas up into Utah anywhere? Because that's all really, like, especially in the Virgin River area there, right out of St. George, that's really steep canyon stuff. Right. Uh, there, There is a rail line that, well, the rail line that goes to Vegas, uh, basically it goes through Delta and Milford, and then it veers off to the west. Uh, and completely misses Washington County. And it goes through a little town in in Nevada called Caliente, and then eventually it makes its way down to Vegas. And uh, there's a spur that goes uh, uh, a little bit south of Milford. There's a little, well, it's not even a town, but there's a railroad junction at a place called Lund where there's a branch that breaks off and goes to Cedar City. And so, uh, yeah, we have the infrastructure to go to Cedar City, but it's non-existent going to St. George. And so are you proposing building new rail? Is that part of what you're trying to accomplish? It's it's not part of the the initial proposal that, that we're working on, but it's something that we'd like to see in the future. And uh, 
it's it's something that would would cost a whole lot of money and would take a lot of engineering because uh, there's actually a pretty big elevation change going mm-hmm. from Cedar City down to St. Like George. straight downhill for 30 yeah. minutes. But uh, it definitely could be done. As, as I've been bored looking for things to do during the pandemic, I have uh, spent a lot of time looking at Switzerland and all of the awesome rail infrastructure that they have there and all of the uh, gigantic tunnels that they've built uh, for that infrastructure. So that, that's been very impressive to me and it made me realize that uh, uh, we're kind of lacking vision in the U.S., that we, we could be doing a whole lot more. Uh, and it's, it's basically, it's not so much a, a, a problem of money, it's more just the political will to, to do it. So are you just like a hardcore railroad junkie? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, it's more, more towards like being a transit junkie where I, I realize that uh, a lot of, of our paychecks are basically being eaten up by cars and it's not so much like I, it's not that I hate cars. It's that uh, it's unfortunately a choice that we made back uh, after World War II, where we put a lot of effort into and, and a lot of funding into building all these highways. And it wasn't the most uh, it wasn't the best return on investment that we could have got for that money. And it it has kind of fed into this this uh, idea of individual freedom in the U.S., but to to have that level of freedom is really expensive for everybody, mm-hmm. and it it breaks down rather quickly. We see that every time there's a traffic jam on the highway. So, what do you think about Elon Musk's tubes? <laughs> <laughs> There's trying trying to say it in a nice way. Uh, It doesn't have to be a nice way. You can just say what your thoughts are. I think it's a I think it's a really like game changing kind of idea what he's proposing and what he would like to do. I don't know how realistic it is personally, but it's it's not really there. There there are some good ideas in there, but it's not really realistic and. Um, it, it's also just the fact that there's not really any functioning prototype being built yet. So, uh, it's, it's not something that anybody in any of the the circles of transportation planners that, that I run in that anybody really takes seriously at this point. Um, and it's kind of the same way with, uh, flying cars and drone technology that, we we realized that um, it it's just not feasible. The, the, the costs are super high. Uh, the amount of people that you can actually move with it is not really that big. And uh, um, let's see the one one of the problems that I see with with Elon Musk's uh, way of of approaching 
problems like uh, urban transportation is that he thinks that he can come up with an engineering solution for every problem. And he doesn't realize that um, there are geometry and uh, physics limitations to being able to do things. And a lot of his his proposals of uh, of well, basically the the idea that he's tried in Los Angeles, where uh, there's this tunnel, and if you got a Tesla car, then you can go into this tunnel, and it basically puts you into a pod that you go down this tunnel in, and uh, he doesn't realize that the the overall throughput in terms of people is still super low and it would be much more cost effective to just build a traditional subway and uh, be able to move a much higher uh, volume of people. And the the problem is that entering and exiting those tunnels, you still are going to end up having a backlog of, of, of cars. It's, it's, you know, a traffic jam at each end. And, uh, so I think Elon Musk has done great things, especially with his battery technologies and uh, the things that he's doing with SpaceX, too. But when he tries to delve into urban transportation issues, uh, <laughs> it, it just completely falls apart. And uh, it's kind of the, the same idea that the the people that are uh, pushing – Uber and Lyft uh, don't seem to realize that their their idea works pretty well in like a suburban context, but it doesn't scale to big cities at all. And uh, you can see this like one of one of the best examples was a couple of years ago. I was in Chicago and I was staying uh, in a hotel right along Michigan Avenue. And uh, Michigan Avenue at that point has two lanes in each direction. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because, of course, me being committed to transit, I was uh, taking the bus to get up and down Michigan Avenue. And I was looking at all of the vehicles going by as I was waiting for the bus. And it was pretty much all taxis and Uber and Lyft. And the Michigan Avenue was so clogged with, with all of these, uh, you know, taxis and, and TNCs that, uh, it, it was keeping the bus from being able to do what it does effectively. And even though the, the bus was full of people, uh, it, it would pretty much take, uh, the bus three light cycles just to make it a block. And so, uh the the bus was super slow and that was affecting ridership on the bus and it's it's one of the things where you, you look at that and you you very quickly realize that you need to have exclusive bus lanes so that the bus can move unhindered and then you've got to tax the the taxis and Uber and Lyft a whole lot more to basically discourage people from using them and get them back on the bus and uh, so there's there's a a capacity problem with with our, our urban streets where uh, if you're moving people uh, 
either if, if they're walking or riding a bike or riding a bus or that that's a much higher capacity to be able to move people than in individual cars. And, uh, we're realizing that, um, basically Uber and Lyft have kind of bet on having hundred percent self-driving cars sometime in the near future. And that's another thing that is just not going to happen, uh, anytime soon. The, the problem is that the technology has evolved a long way in recent years. So it's basically like 99% of the way there. But that last little 1% is going to take decades to get the technology good enough that you can uh, basically have self-driving shuttles that that are there. And then no, you still we're, have... We're five years away, in my opinion. It is, it is so close. Uh, our 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 ability to uh, build on our technology in an industry, especially that, and, and I, I'm actually I'm worried about the the place there, the long haul trucking industry. Uh, I think that will be one of the first places that that actually get uh, self driving technology uh, implored in it uh, pretty quickly, and, and you're going to see a lot of long haul truckers go out of work. Uh, I, I think that. In particular, some companies like Tesla are doing with the self-driving technology. They're getting so much data so fast. Um, it's it's not like times old where it does take you know twenty thirty years to hash out that last one percent. I think the mountains of data that are available is uh, that stuff's going to be processed a, a lot faster. I, I don't think we're that far away. I think we're really close to that stuff being at a point where they're seeking you know, regulatory approval to, to have it uh, be the common thing. I mean, Tesla's, every Tesla on the road self-drives now. Um, they have pieces in place of the Tesla where it requires the driver's, you know, a checks driver's eye contact and, and feels on the steering wheel. Uh, but even my, even my 2020 Honda, um, it's essentially self-driving. You know, I, I'm sure it could be updated to, to be self-driving. It already auto-corrects, um, you know, speed, distance, uh, lane changes. Um, it's it's very, very close. I, I don't think it's decades away. I think it's within the next five to ten years. I think we're going to see a lot more of that start to show up. But it doesn't solve the problem because it's still a bunch of cars on the road. Right. Yes, that's that's kind of the thing that uh... – we we're we're gonna disagree on how soon that's gonna come, but we can definitely agree that it's still uh, it doesn't still solve the problem at all. Highway, yeah, and uh, in theory it makes it safer, but it doesn't it doesn't solve the problem, right? And uh, it it also doesn't really scale well. There, there, there are people that say, oh, well, we don't need uh, trains traveling longer distances, like, for example, from here to St. George, uh, because we're going to have these self-driving cars in the future. Well, the problem is that it doesn't really scale all that well to, to moving people longer distances. It's, it's much more cost effective to still have a train or a bus uh, than to have individual vehicles moving people. 
But even when they have that, the average person is not going to be able to afford it for a long time. Right. And and that's always going to be a, a big issue because our, our transportation system is not very equitable uh, in terms of, uh, well, it's, it's, it's much better if we can invest a lot more in public transit because that, that, uh, makes the entry into the entry cost into the transportation system, much more affordable for people. And, uh, yeah, people tend to grossly underestimate how much it really costs to have a car. And, uh, one of the really accurate, uh, uh, estimates of that is done every every year. The the AAA, the American Automobile Association, puts out estimates. And the last time I looked, they were uh, it was running about eighty five hundred dollars a year per vehicle for each household. And uh, that's that's on the average. So you know, not everybody's going to be spending that much if they're uh, getting by on a on a much older cheaper car, but it's still uh, a huge part of our wealth is being uh, eaten up, uh, which is one of the reasons why I actually got rid of my car uh, four years ago. So I am very blessed to live in a neighborhood in Salt Lake City where I've got a track station nearby that uh, makes it easy for me to, uh, to live without having to have a car. Well, and are, are you in? Are you like in downtown where tracks is free for a good chunk of the space? Uh, I'm I'm actually in Rose Park, uh, okay. about halfway between downtown and the airport, and uh, so tracks is not free, but uh, I'm able to take advantage of the uh, the Hive Pass, which is offered mm-hmm. through Salt Lake City for all Salt Lake City residents. So it cost me $42 a month to have unlimited uh, rides uh, yeah. on, on tracks and on the bus. I, I have to pay an upgrade if I want to go somewhere on Front Runner, but uh, it still makes it very affordable. And uh, it's actually wonderful to not have to worry about a car, to not have to yeah, I mean, worry about like- in Salt Lake City proper, the the transit system's great. There's buses on every other street. They run every 15 minutes in most cases. Um, you know the the transit was set up very well there. You've got you know tracks that'll take you to other longer distance parts of the valley as long as you stay really close to the I-15 corridor or out to the airport now. Um, you know, it takes you up to the university. And so the, the mass transit in Salt Lake City proper is is really quite fantastic. Um, and, and it's really easy to not own a car there. But if, if I didn't ran later too, if I didn't own a car here, it would be insane. Like it would, uh, oh, the amount yeah. of time, the amount of time and money that I would sacrifice to, to be able to just work is just not worth it to me. Well, and hauling stuff back and forth because you're not close to whatever you need to be. I mean, I'm not, I, to be fair, we're fairly close to a grocery store. We're very close to a Walmart that I don't like to shop at. Um, <laughs> you know, but, if, but but that's the other thing. Like, if I want to frequent local businesses and really support the local economy, you know, it's Harmons. 
not much else out here exactly. that's truly a local business, right? So whereas you go to downtown Salt Lake or, you know, uh, it's tons of local businesses. It's tons of local economy that you're supporting to help give back into the community. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very different place. I mean, that's like in Chicago, in New York, um, those are places where owning a car is absolutely a liability. And $8,000 is is not even the cost of the car itself in those areas like that's i mean the amount that you pay just to park your car in those those cities is absurd mm-hmm. uh, and so but again those are places that have pretty good mass transit systems the train in chicago is is pretty good uh to get you around different parts of chicago and you know new york its subway system is just out of this world uh but DC's isn't bad. Nope, DC's got really good mass transit, you know. But yeah. again, some of that is these these cities on the East Coast that have that they're bigger and they're older, and they haven't always had good mass transit. Um, Boston is not a great mass transit city. <laughs> it's a pretty poor designed city, uh, and they haven't you know they haven't done a lot to really improve Boston all that well. I don't think so. <laughs> Just some observations from a guy that's traveled a lot. <laughs> Uh, some places, you know, I don't rent cars because it's just too big of a pain in the butt to have a car. And, you know, other places, basically the further west you get, uh, or e- even the Midwest, the Midwest is pretty bad. You know, Ohio, um, you know, in any of the smaller, pop, more, you know, sparsely populated states, it's it's a lot more difficult. So, Mike, you know, you've got these these good ideas. You've got some plans. How are you... Um, how are you pushing those, you know, into the legislature, into uh, the the places that matter uh, to try and get these ideas adopted? Well, one of the uh, the big issues is is going to be funding, and we are hopeful that now that uh, the Biden administration is going to be taking over here in a week. Uh, that there's going to be a big push for infrastructure spending, and we are hoping uh, to have a lot of funds available uh, for states to take advantage of in order to implement uh, projects like the proposal that I'm pushing. And hey, as long as it's not health care, there's a good chance Utah might actually take federal funds. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Right. And uh, I am, well, one of the things that I've, I've got colleagues from surrounding states that are wanting to put together a uh, multi-state congressionally sanctioned passenger rail commission that would actually be very helpful in order to uh, to get funding together and proposals, especially for for passenger routes that are crossing multiple state boundaries. Uh, but it's it's been difficult because um, we aren't really prepared properly here in Utah to be able to take advantage of, of funding uh, that's going to become available. And basically, the, the best way to sum it up is that uh, UDOT has been doing highways for so long that they don't really know how to do something like what I'm proposing. And so that's one of the the hindrances is basically, I, I guess a good way to state it is that we lack the institutional capacity 
we we don't have people within UDOT and within state government that are uh, experienced with things like this. And you see that when you look at uh, neighboring states, like Colorado is a really good example. Uh, Colorado, about 10 years ago, actually launched a their, – their Department of Transportation launched a uh, bus system to be able to connect – uh, beyond the local transit districts and connect communities all around the state of Colorado. And uh, I had the experience to uh, talk over Zoom a couple weeks ago with uh, the the manager that manages that. And his, his concern about UDOT is that they just don't have uh, enough people with experience uh, in doing projects like that. And that puts Utah at a disadvantage because, um, yeah, if, if you want to get around along the Watsatch front, we've, we've got transit to do that. But we're struggling to be able to get some type of public transportation that connects, like, from Brigham City to Logan. And, um, or if you want to get to out to Moab, there is, is right now there's nothing that will get you there. And, uh, that, that puts us at a disadvantage because, um, well, for example, one of my good friends used to be, uh, a child protective services officer working in Moab. And she said that one of their biggest difficulties, uh, in, trying to get work done there. Well, they, they have a big focus on wanting to reunify families, um, but it was a, a big difficulty because when children would have to be removed from a home for whatever reason and, and placed in foster care, uh, they would often get placed in a foster home along the Wasatch Front. And then when it came time for the parents to start making reunification visits to the kids, they struggled to be able to get from Moab up to the Wasatch Front. And it was for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it was just because they were poor and and couldn't afford it. But then other times, um, maybe they had lost their license because of alcoholism or whatever. And uh, without any other options, that makes it a whole lot more expensive for people. And uh, so I, I a lot of times look at, at rural Utah and rural America and at the lack of transportation options that we have and feel like we're kind of in a third world country from that point of view. Uh it's it's just not something that that's being thought about in Utah, and I'm hoping to change that. And I've been trying to push the legislature to to think about it differently, uh, because they're they're going to suddenly realize that this funding is available. And uh, we're going to be behind other states uh, as far as getting in line to take advantage of it. So 
Uh, I think that gives a pretty good summary of, of why I'm, I'm concerned that we're not, uh, not getting things organized as well as we should in Utah. Okay, Mike, we got one more question for you, and then we'll let you go for the evening. Okay. Uh, what's the most interesting or unique thing that you've discovered about the state of Utah in your time here? Um, it, it's actually a couple, well, I've, since my mind is, is on transportation uh, things, um, it's interesting because Utah actually does have a ferry and Utah actually does have one toll road. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> the the ferry is uh oh, I forget which state highway it's a part of, but it's going between Bullfrog and Halls Crossing across Lake Powell. And that ferry is actually the most expensive piece of equipment that UDOT owns. <laughs> yeah. I did not know. <laughs> uh, the the toll road was actually uh, it's called I think it's called Adams Avenue Parkway, and it's up in South Ogden. Uh, they're they're basically if you picture where I eighty four comes down out of the mouth of of Weber Canyon and is right along the, the Weber River and it goes through the 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 interchange with uh, Highway 89 and it actually uh, there's a another interchange for uh, South Weber uh, that's a little further down the river but right up on top of the hill to the north is is South Ogden and there's actually a hospital there I forget which hospital it is, but for years and years, people there in South Ogden complained and wanted the state to build a uh, a road connecting that interchange at the bottom of the hill down by the river and go up the hill up to South Ogden, and it's only like a mile and a half or so. And they just couldn't get get any of the local leaders to put any effort behind it. And finally, someone suggested that they just um, organize and get a loan and build a toll road. And so, yes, you can actually drive up that hill now. There's a toll station halfway, and I think it's a uh, dollar for for a car to to go up the hill. And uh, it's it's kind of weird that that we've got this quirky toll road here in Utah that hardly anybody knows about. But uh, it exists. <laughs> cool. That is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I had no idea. <laughs> How can people get a hold of you if they, they want to help, they want to support, they want to get involved? Well, uh, they can go on, on the website, which is utahrpa.org. And my email address is mike at utahrpa.org. And I am also very active on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at MRC underscore SLC. And uh, yeah, I am, I'm looking for people to, to be allies in this effort. And I'm hoping that there are lots of people out there who 
uh, would like to ride trains and, and buses in order to get uh, throughout other areas of Utah beyond the Wasatch Front. So I think that's a good uh, a good summary there. Well, excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. I really liked that. We'll see you back in a few. Yeah. That well, was good. That's, that's, yeah, I like that. That's uh, We're back now, and so um, I hope you enjoyed our uh, – uh, our guest. Um, I know I, I would have, ride a train. Let me tell you, when I when, when I when I saw his name, I was like, and I saw what he wanted to do. I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? And that was pretty interesting. The conversation. Um, I was like, I don't know if I want to. So now legislative sessions happening. I I assume he'll be lobbying and trying to to get this to get money to get this started. Like yeah, because it's not a short-term project. That would be cool to ride a train from here to Vegas. I would love it. I, I would do it. that. I would absolutely do it. I would ride a train from here to Wendover. There's a rail system oh, yeah. that does that. I think a lot of people would. That would be fun. I want to, so there, there is a, if you're driving out to Wendover and you're driving west, the train tracks are on the south side of the road. And I don't think that they're used, so I wonder if it's just a lot of like retrofitting and stuff that would have to be yeah, if they're done. Not, if they're not used, they're probably really fucked up from the salt. <laughs> oh yeah, good point. That's, and and they would pro- they might have to be replaced. I don't know how bad the salt's eaten away. But the, the but the fire. the path the path is there to to recreate. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Yeah. So, but I but yeah, seriously, like a track down to Vegas would be great. I don't know that you can do an easy train ride to Vegas. The, I mean, the good news is you're in the middle of nowhere, and you can uh, passenger rail. You could really speed that shit up, right? Oh yeah, because mm-hmm. and you would you would go out by Delta and stuff essentially, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and yeah. cut across and go the Nevada around desert. The back. Yeah, because otherwise you going down Wind River. I just don't think is is an option. That so. would be really cool. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Virgin River, not Wind River, by the way. But anyway. Well, the concept of and Wind, I know Wind rivers in Wyoming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amtrak, I know they have Amtrak quite a bit more established, more on the eastern side. Yeah, of the and states. there's some stuff northwest, like you can go up to Washington and yeah, and, and Oregon and over it. to like Northern California. But the idea of being able to travel, I mean, for a hundred years, that's how we got across America was on a train. Mm-hmm. It's it's inter- yeah, and it's interesting. This is the crossroads because you go back east, which you kind of talked about. And you can take a train up to Boston, or, you know, or, or anything in, in those metro areas. And yeah, and that's I, just a good yeah. way to travel. I mean, there, we are so. the center of the it. United States with the Golden Spike, right? Right, uh, that's smack right in the middle. In the middle, <laughs> we met in the middle. To be fair, we are a pretty major intersection. Like I fifteen and I eighty and that's the railroad intersecting here is a big deal. So. Uh, but anyway, uh, hopefully you liked what you heard this episode. Uh, let us know. Um, you can uh, talk to us on social media at TNU Podcast. We also appreciate shares of the episode uh, if you are so inclined. Um, Sharing is caring. It is what helps us the most. Um, you can also go check out our website. Let us know what you think of uh, the new varied blog postings from different authors that have now started to happen. Uh, TheNewUtah.com is where you'll find all that. and um, Let us know what you think. Uh, so hopefully you have a, a a better 2021 with a new presidency. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Bless your get your boobs checked. What? I you, said you guys can't all just. Well, are we, we just did. all? Are bless we, your heart and get your boobs checked. Are we just all going to say our own yes. sign-offs from now on? <laughs> yep. Is that going to be our new thing? Yep. Why not? Instead of someone just shoving something in at the end, we'll yep. just all do one. I, I still like you. Hang up. That was my favorite one. <laughs> <Trends>. <laughs> <laughs> you hang up. Okay, so. Jeremy's? 
Bless your heart. Check your boobs. What's yours, Brie? I don't have one. You just put me on the spot. Well, I thought maybe you would come up with one. Because this episode's probably going to be called The Big D. So. <laughs> I don't even know what happened. Please. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, Bye, Chris. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm not even going to put one in.